0: Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, October 31st, 2021, we continue our series titled, Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, Total Depravity, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. The second question, why not do evil that good? may come and this is the crazy mystery of the scriptures right because we see people doing evil and God using those evil things to do good and this is the idea that these people are dancing around why am I being condemned as a sinner why not do evil that good can come we just live a life of sin because it's fine because Jesus forgives it all and also get this when we sin God still makes good things happen from it we, we just say Jesus save me and then we're totally good to do whatever we want the entirety of our lives that is not the gospel. Romans chapter six, verses one through two says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is what they're looking at, not just the grace abounding, but good things abounding because of our sin. And what's the apostle Paul's response? By no means, absolutely not, Meganoida, nope. Nope, that's not how this works. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you're dead to something, you don't live in it. We have no license to sin and Paul says believing this, believing that you can just let grace abound, it's actually worthy of a just condemnation. If we're dead to sin, we no longer live in it.
1: You know, contrary to what most people think, the Bible is not a sequence of moral stories that are simply put together to encourage us to be better human beings. A lot of people think that. Oh, I just read this, you know, this is going to be the thing that's going to make me a, a better person. The Bible actually has this one continuous storyline. It starts at the beginning and goes all the way to the end. That is that people apart from a life submitted to God are messy. They're sinners. And it's not hard for us to do that. I mean, we can dishonor God because our priorities are wrong. We put ourselves before the Lord. We can wound each other with our own selfishness. We can mess up our own lives with simply the choices that we make. This can happen so many different ways. There's a word that theologians use to describe the condition, and that is depravity. Total depravity. Now I know what the average person thinks. When you hear that, the average person will go, depravity? So are you gonna talk about like mass murderers and terrorists and you know, people that are just as bad as you can possibly be? No, I'm not talking about people that are just as bad as you can possibly be. That's not what the word means. The word depravity, it's the idea that someone who is incapable of being righteous, there's nothing that they can do to make them righteous. See, I cannot be righteous apart from God's love and forgiveness, his transformation. It's impossible, no matter what I do. I mean, you could, you could take and, and give away every single dollar you've ever had. You could help every single person you could possibly help. You could spend all of your time doing those things. And you know what? You would be maybe the best person in your family or your neighborhood or even this room. You might be the best person there, but it would not fundamentally make you Holy. It just wouldn't that's depravity it's what paul is trying to teach the romans here in chapters 1 2 and 3 and he's going to use a lot of old testament scriptures to build his case for that the problem though with talking about depravity is is that unfortunately so many people just think that does not apply to me it's not me The reason why they think that is because people somehow wrongly measure, you know, themselves with the idea that like, okay, well, if I stand myself up next to this person, well, I'm not as bad as them. So I guess I can't be depraved, or they're more depraved than me, or whatever the, you know, however you wanna look at it. The problem with that, though, is when the Bible tells us that our measure, our standard, it doesn't tell us it's other people, it tells us it's God. You see, who we are morally has nothing to do with how I measure up against you. Not at all. People are not the standard for our righteousness. We are considered depraved because we can't not measure up next to God. That's what the scriptures tell us. In Romans chapter three, verse 23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, when Paul started all this back in chapter one. He started talking at first about the Gentiles and the, and, and the crazy lifestyles that they lived. And then he got into chapter two and he started talking about the hyper-religious you know, Jews at that, at that time. And you get to chapter three and now he's gonna combine it all together and say it over and over again that you're sinners. Now this is incredibly you know, applicable to us as people because the truth is we tend to think I'm not really a sinner. I mean, if I look around and I see other people around me, I go, well, they're way worse than me, so they must be sinners. I'm probably not. That's a mistake, a theological error, however you want to put it. We're all sinners. Go to Romans 3 and let's, let's read through the passage here together. Romans 3, starting at verse 9. Paul writes and he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that would be everybody, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, what, what I believe Paul's going to do here is he's going to tell us seven truths about depravity. And I guarantee you that we all fit into this. Seven truths, and then he's going to come back and he's going to talk about why we need the law. Now, the first thing he's going to tell us here in verse nine is he's going to give us the universal problem of sin, and by universal I mean everyone is a sinner. He says, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged, or the word there actually is proven, it's, in other words it's obvious to all that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Everyone is a sinner, sinner and it's obvious to all. That's what happens really when you begin to read the first three chapters of Romans. One college professor in India read through the first three chapters and he wrote this. He said, Whoever wrote this knows India. Well, the truth is, he knows everyone, not just the Indians. He knows everyone. He knows the fact that we're all sinners. Mark Twain said it really well. He says, People are like the moon, they have a dark side, they don't want anyone to see. You know, I know that even bringing this up, I know that some people, maybe even some of you, don't like this term that we're using. Don't like the term depraved. Because somehow, in other words, it, it feels like it's like almost anti-society, or it's almost, you know, I mean, it feels like it's dehumanizing. You know, people have told me that. Or it feels like it devalues us, you know, as, as people. When the truth is, it does exactly the opposite. You see, what depravity does in a real way is it puts us all at exactly the same level. You see, when I realized that I, before Christ, I was totally and completely depraved, I realized that I might be better off than somebody. I might be in a, in a situation where, I, you know, I've, financially I'm in a good situation, or I might be in a safe place, or I might be, you know, a lot of different things like that, but I am no better than anybody I'm not better than the guy that's on the street corner asking if you could give him a couple of dollars I'm better off maybe but I'm not better I'm not better than the young woman who goes down to a street corner and is going to sell her body because she's trying to feed her family I'm, I'm better off but I'm not better I'm not morally better than, than them I'm not better than the person that's down on the border trying to cross the border. I may disagree. I may not like the method. I may not, you know, wish they would take different steps in doing it, but I'm not better than them. I'm not better than the person who thinks politically the opposite of me completely. I'm not better. I don't have to agree with them, but I shouldn't hate them. You know, inevitably, when you say something like that, you know, someone will come back, wait a minute, are you saying that I'm really no better off than anybody else or I'm no better than Hitler? No, I'm not saying that. Hitler was evil to the core. But remember, God isn't measuring me against Hitler. My measurement is him. We fall short of the glory of God. Let me give you an illustration to see if they can make this understand. Let's say that, um, you guys have all been to San Diego, right, to do the whole vacation thing on the beach, right? Well, let's say that you, you, you read that there's three people who are gonna try to make this swim. They're gonna go from San Diego, they're gonna go to the beach there in Mission Beach, and they're gonna, they're gonna go in the water, and they're gonna try to make the swim from San Diego, from Mission Beach there, to Japan, 5,600 miles. And how far they're gonna get in this is gonna be determined by their morality. So the first person goes out and goes into the water, and this is a, morally, this is a really bad person, kind of on the scale of, of Hitler in this case, and they get out maybe 100 yards, they go down. That's it. No further. They're gone. The second, though, you know, is assured that they are much better than that. So the second person, the everyday Joe or Jane kind of a person, they go out there, and they're nothing like that. They're not evil like the first person, but the truth is they're a little bit selfish. A little bit self-centered, and frankly, you know, as long as things work out really good for them, they're pretty happy in life. As long as I don't break down by the side of the road, everything's great, you know, and, and, and I'm pretty happy. And they get out a thousand times further than the first one. A thousand times. They get out maybe 250 miles, but then ultimately the rolling sea just kind of beats them up and they go down. Then there's a third one that comes along and this is this person, you know, gives to charity and volunteers to, you know, in different ways to serve and, you know, when the United Way needs to come around and they got their little bucket and they want everybody to give to it a little bit, you know, and they do that and, you know, maybe they look back and when they were in college, after they got out of college, they decided to go in the Peace Corps for a while and they, they did all of that. They are 10,000 times better than the first person that goes into the water. And so they go way, they go a lot further. They get out like seven or 800 miles and then they go down. Well, here's the question, who won? Because the world will tell you, well, number three won. Because they were morally superior than anybody. Well, the answer is no one won, no one. They all fell short of the goal that they had. They all drowned in this case. See, the goal isn't to to get the furthest and then die. The goal isn't to be the nicest person in hell. The goal is to get to heaven to be with Jesus, and it's not about me comparing myself to someone else morally. Well, I'm better than them. That doesn't matter. I don't care who you are morally. At some point, you drowned. You don't make it. You might go 10,000 times further than the other person, but you will not make it. It's not about me comparing myself morally with other people. It's about me being right with God. Apart from Christ, every single person drowns spiritually. That is depravity. We fall short of the glory of God. Now, the second thing that Paul is gonna tell us here is that there, there is no one righteous, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Now, regardless, that means regardless of your background, that regardless of your lineage. In fact, you might say, well, hey, my family came over on the Mayflower. It doesn't matter. You say, well, my parents, my grandparents were missionaries. That doesn't matter. Your lineage, your background, none of those things Matter. Paul in, in Romans chapter five verse 12 tells us as, as a result of Adam's sin, sin infected and corrupted every single person who's ever been born's DNA and now you're born with it. You're a sinner. You know, people will argue about that, they'll question that in, in some ways. They'll, you know, I've had people say, well, yeah, but I know people who aren't religious that are good well, the question is, what constitutes good? Am I good if I let someone cut in line in traffic? You ever been on the 101 when it gets off on you know, Pima up here at 5 o'clock? Am I good if, if they, they cut in front of me a little bit and I don't use any arm signals to say anything? Does that make me good? Am I good if I stop and I give someone a $10 bill, you know, that's on a corner? Does that make me good or did I just do a good deed? Charles Spurgeon, one of his primary topics that he loved to hit on was the issue of motives. And and one of the stories that he would often use is he would use this story about a gardener and a king and a carrot. Sounds like an odd mix, but this gardener, it's in the story here. He grew this enormous carrot. I mean, absolutely off the charts, big. And instead of taking it and you know just cutting it up into pieces and maybe spreading it out to all the you know the people in the in sort of that little area that he lived in right there, it was so big and so impressive that he literally loaded it up on this cart and he took it down to the castle and brought it in to the king and presented it to the king. And the king discerned here that the gardener absolutely, truly, his motives were absolutely pure. He truly did love his king. And so, you know, the the king's showing everybody, he's calling people in to come look at this carrot, this thing is just absolutely big, and the gardener slowly starts to back away, and then ultimately turns around and starts to walk out, and the king stops him. And he says, you know, because you've done this, I want to give you a parcel of land so that you might grow more amazing carrots just like that. Now, the story obviously got out, right? So at this point, because, you know, at this point, you know, you, everybody's, you know, it, it becomes the gossip of the town. Did you hear what the king did? This guy grew this big carrot and the king gave him land. And so this guy says, huh, well, I wonder what the king would give me if I gave him this incredible stallion, I mean, I, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go down and, and give him this stallion, see what he gives me. So the guy goes down, he brings the, the horse in before the king, but the king discerns that his true motive is to get something in return. And so the king spoke, and he said to him, you and the gardener are very different. Perhaps no one else can can see you here, see your motives here, but I can. And he goes, and this is what I see. He, the gardener here, gave the carrot for me. You are giving the horse for you. Spurgeon's point was the king knows our motives, just like our king. When I do something, is it done out of true motives? Is it done out of guilt? Is it done out of looking for approval? Is it done, you know, in a way, trying to earn our way to heaven? See, doing something for someone else can so easily become formulaic. In fact, if you can remember back into chapter two, as we're walking through all of that, you'll remember that the religious people there were putting all their confidence in a formula. The formula was just get the law, do your offerings, make the alms, do a good work. You're good. And what Paul says there in chapter 2 is no you're you're not you're not good. That's not going to work. Because that didn't come from a pure heart. See, people can accomplish things apart from Christ, but God doesn't take it as good. True goodness comes from inside of us. It's not based on me making, you know, trying to look good or earning favor. It comes from faith. You see, you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden, God puts, you know, God's Holy Spirit lives inside of us, residing inside of us, and now it starts growing and working, and for the craziest things. I mean, all of a sudden now, there are people that I used to detest, and now actually, I love them. I can't explain why. And, and there are things that I never thought I would do before, and now, I do. I mean, I can remember being 14 years old and, and thinking to myself, the last thing in the world I want to do is go down to that church, you know, and sit there and listen to all these really old 300-year-old songs and, and all this other stuff, and for whatever reason, though, inside of me, something was going, yeah, but you need to be there because that's where your family's at. It starts working like that. And all of a sudden, that whole, the Holy Spirit living inside of me begins to bear fruit. And then all of a sudden things start coming out of me like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's not to impress anybody else. It's because something's happened inside of me. That's why the gospel is such a, a radical truth. It's the most radical truth of all time because it changes me. Because God calls me at that point to be his hands and his feet. It's not a self-help program. It's a new birth. It changes everything. Now the third thing that Paul says here is in verse 11, and he says that no one seeks God. He says no one understands God and no one seeks for God. Now, I know a lot of people would describe themselves as seekers. I mean, I've heard that term so many times. There are some churches that just specialize in that kind of a thing, but according to Paul, they really aren't. They really aren't seekers. I mean, well, how could Paul say that? Well, the issue is, do we truly, humbly desire to know the true God, to bow before him, to worship before him, or is this just a curious mind? not a heart that truly is desirous to know God. Paul would say that, no, we're not seekers. You know where he got that from? Jesus. Keep your finger here in Romans. I want you to turn back to the left to John chapter six. John chapter six. John chapter six, starting with verse 44. Jesus is speaking here and he says these words. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Where is the seeking in that? It's not there. Paul In 2 Timothy chapter two, verse verse 25 says, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. What he's saying here, back in verse 11 in Romans chapter three is, you didn't seek God. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you came because God drew you to himself. And let me tell you something. Here's what this should mean for you. You ought to be thankful. Now, I risk that there's a chance here that I'm gonna offend you, and I hope I don't. That's not my, my plan at all. But when I see people that are in the middle of worship and they're cold, I'm not sure that I see spiritual life. Because for us who understand that we were spiritually dead and made alive and adopted as his children into the family, we ought to be thankful. We ought to be so ready to praise his name not ashamed. Keep your finger here in Romans. Go over to the right to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. The first three verses here in Ephesians two, Paul is gonna give us the, the situation that you and I live in before we come to faith in Jesus Christ. He says this, he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Did you catch that? We all once lived like that. There was a time that every single one of us were dead spiritually. Now, if you believe today, it is because what happens here in verses four through nine. Verse four, verse four he says... is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. In other words, God does all of the work, we receive all the benefit, but there is no place in there that you can pat yourself on the back and say, I'm here because I sought God. uh oh You're here because God drew you to himself and extended his mercy, love to you. He put his affections on you The fourth thing he tells us here in verse 12 is that no one does good. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now that seems wrong, kind of. You know, People do charitable stuff, don't they? The goodness that Paul's talking about here in the passage is focused on our relationship with God. Whether our deeds can fix that relationship or they establish a righteousness of their own and the answer is No. In fact, the issue in verse 12 here is it says that people have turned aside. You don't want to know what that that means. That means that you're taking it your own route. You haven't followed the the plan that God has for you. You've decided to take it your own route. And I have people tell me this all the time. Well, God and I have this understanding, or I kind of think it's gonna be like this. Good luck. Because there's nothing in the Bible that would support that, not even one thing. You see, we, if our hearts don't get completely on our knees before the Lord and are broken, something is wrong, folks. There can be no pride inside of us. There can be no sense that I did this or I'm doing my part. There's none of that. That's why it's taking him three chapters because the Romans weren't getting that. The Romans kept thinking, but we rule the world. Why does he keep saying we're sinners? We rule the world. And the Jews were going, yeah, but we've got the oracles of God. Why is he calling us sinners? Because we are. There has to be this humility inside of us that stops and says, Lord, I am here for one reason, one reason only, because you were merciful to me. You loved me. You know, it's so interesting that the whole idea of turning aside gives you the idea that we're, we're enamored by our own way. We want to go our own way instead of God's way. We want our will and not God's will. Think back in Matthew chapter six when Jesus you know, taught people to pray. Do you remember how we, what he said there about our wills? Lord, let your will be happening here on earth just like it is in heaven. Not my will, yours. Now there's a fifth thing he says here in verses 13 and 14 and that has to do with our tongues. Verse 13 he says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Notice the progression there from the throat to the tongue to the lip to the mouth. It's almost the way a sound comes out. Throat here is an open grave. Their tongues are deceitful. Their lips have the venom of the poison of asp. An asp was an Egyptian cobra. Um, The snake that struck really quickly and immobilized and killed. And In fact, if you know your history, Cleopatra was killed by the bite of an asp. And then it says your mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You know, it's so interesting because in Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 said, you know, it's not, what goes into the body that defiles us. It's what comes out of the mouth that comes from the heart. That's what defiles us. The sixth thing he says here is our relationships. Look at verses 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. You know, I, I, I'd I asked some of the staff this earlier this past week, do you know what the first sin was after the fall? Murder. The fall, you know, that takes place in the Garden of Eden. You would think, you know, I, and I have to be honest, you know, in my, my mind, you would have thought, well, probably, wouldn't it be like a struggle between two warring peoples or two, you know, things like that? Wouldn't it be war and and those sort of things? no. Nope. Cain killed his brother Abel because Abel made a better sacrifice than him. Murder. You know, relationally, people can be vicious, wounding, controlling, manipulative, egotistical, abusive. That is not who we have been saved to be. The seventh thing he says here is our lack of respect for God. Verse 18, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, the fear of God is a really central concept in the Bible. And it's not just deep-seated respect. If If you go back into the Old Testament, you'll see like Isaiah, who was a prophet of the Lord in Isaiah 6, God gives him a chance to see into his, you know, into heaven And the first thing that Isaiah says, this is a guy who God speaks to all the time. The first thing he says is, Woe is me, for my eyes have seen the king. David in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, said, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you remembered my sin, if you counted them against me, who could even stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Why? That you may be feared. Psalm 36 verse one, he says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in this heart. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what King David is saying here. We sin because we don't fear God. And you know why we don't fear God? Because we don't understand him. I know there are people that are going, I don't really want to fear God You don't understand what we're talking about here then. If you're familiar at all with C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis was a a philosopher, a theologian, uh, wrote some amazingly wonderful things, you know, depth of theology. And and in The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe, he he tells the story of who our God is. And there's this great scene here because the God character in The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe is a lion. And the lion is named Aslan. And Aslan roars, and everybody's like, whoa, you know. And so one of the little children who somehow slipped in through, you know, the the, the mirror there wants to get back out, and he's afraid, but he's going to, you know, soon be standing right in front of Aslan. And so he asks Mr. Tumnus, he he says, you know, is, is Aslan safe? And Mr. Tumnus says, oh no. He's not safe, but he's good. That's the best picture I can think of to tell you. You see, our God has the ability to snuff out all life on this planet or any other place if there would be like that. He has the capacity to to create. You know, it literally says he laid out the heavens by the span. He can do anything he wants to do, but it's not his character to do that. Fearing God is the antidote to everything Paul says here about sin. If I understand who my God is, everything changes in my life. I deeply respect him. I deeply love him. But I even tremble a little bit at the power, the majesty, the wonder of who he is. Knowing all the time he's merciful, gracious, I'm going to ask the worship team if they'll come back and join me. The last thing that Paul wants to tell us here in verses 19 through 20 is that law leads us to truth. He says, Now we know, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will just be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You know, there's a reason why in the church here, we study every single part of God's word, both Old and New Testament, because even the Old, even the law has an important role. And verse 20 makes it really clear here that what happens is the Old Testament tells me that I am a sinner, that I am below the standard of God. The New Testament tells me the same thing. Galatians chapter three, verse 23 tells me that the law is my guardian. It is a tutor to lead me to Christ. See, this is all about people trusting in Jesus. You know, there's an old saying, and you know, not all of the saying is true here, but the idea is right is that you gotta get a man lost before you can get him found. You understand what I'm saying? Why does Paul need three chapters to convince these people in Rome that they're sinners? It's because it's not normal for us to to do that. It's not. We tell ourselves we're great all the time. We tell ourselves that we're better than other people. And Paul wants to be really clear. Know your not but you might be better off and if you come to faith in Christ you certainly are better off you know there are a lot of people that will look into Christianity and all they want to talk about is the love of God There are people that um, were coming to Highlands. They're not even coming anymore because we started the book of Romans and for this, you know, for six, eight weeks now, we've been talking about the first three chapters was just on sin and they don't want to hear it. I'm sorry, but we're sinners saved by grace, saved by the mercy of God. And that should affect us. If I retain a cold attitude towards our God or other believers or worship, something is desperately wrong in my life, then I don't understand who our God really is or what he's done for me. It should affect my life. Paul wants it to affect the Romans. He wants them to to understand, to get exactly what God has done for them. And so he starts off telling them their need. First, do you understand your need? This morning we're going to take communion, and if you don't have one of these little communion things, we've got some people that are going to pass it. Would you just slip your hand up if you need one? Somebody will bring you one. Just keep it up for a second. Communion—I don't know if you've ever thought about this—is all about the gospel. See, the bread and the juice remind us that Jesus' body was broken for us and that his blood was shed for us and that every single time we we do it, we take communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the gospel. And so I want to encourage you, has the gospel changed your life? Is there a thankfulness, before God, a true humility and thankfulness before him in your life. Because if it's just in a little addition, no big deal, you can, you know, take it or leave it, I want to encourage you, I don't think you're saved. Because I think this is a radical transformation that takes place in our lives. And we need to be ready. Paul and first corinthians chapter 11 said this he says whoever then eats the bread or drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the lord so let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup in other words god fully wants you to take communion but he wants you to make stop and based upon what he's done for you make sure your heart and mind are right And so I want you to take a moment right where you're at. Make sure you're right, personally. It's not about the person next to you, it's about you. Would you do that just for a second? Verse 23, Paul writes and he says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, he said, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." I want you to know that as soon as we finish this service, there're going to be a group of people that will be down here at the bottom they're here to pray with you. If there's anything you need to, for someone to pray with you, I'd encourage you to come and they'd love to be able to do that. But would you join me in prayer just for a second? Father, I pray that our hearts would be laid bare before you, that we would be thankful, Father, of your salvation, your forgiveness, that we would not be cold like those who don't know you, but our hearts would be moved because of the mercy that you've extended to us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you remember back at the start of the book of Romans, we told you that Romans goes through these different things. It starts off talking about sin, and then it moves to salvation, and then it will talk about sovereignty and service, and right down the line, I mean, it's an incredibly well thought, it's perfect. I mean, it's God's word, and so, look, we're going to get to salvation, but don't miss the fact that Paul would take three chapters to convince people that we're no different then, that we ought to be thankful, that we ought to be humble before the Lord, and let it be obvious to all. We don't act like the rest of the world. We're thankful God has saved us. God bless you. Love you all.